This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Black Widows, where I detail crimes of women serial killers who target not strangers, but those with which they have an intimate or close relationship, most often a spouse. Black Widow cases are so fascinating because these women are a rare form of serial killer. To give a definition, I'll refer to Kelleher's book on female serial killers. A Black Widow is a, quote, woman who systematically murders multiple spouses, partners, other family members, or individuals outside of the family with whom she has developed a personal relationship, unquote. The Black Widow killer tends to get away with their crimes for a longer period of time, owing to the fact that most don't suspect them at first. Because of this, the body count can be high. On average, a Black Widow will claim between 6 and 13 victims before she is caught, or otherwise ends her active killing period. Their murder method is overwhelmingly by the use of poison, and the motivation is almost always profit. Some of the most well-known Black Widows in history are Belle Gunness in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Nanny Doss, known as the Giggling Granny, who murdered 10 of her family members between 1925 and 1954, and Velma Barfield, who didn't begin her murder spree until she was approaching middle age. But I want to tell you about an even more rare type of Black Widow killer, Black Widow Sisters. Each of these two stories involves sisters who conspired together to kill spouses and family members for financial gain. In effect, these sisters ran murder syndicates for profit. One story will take us back to the turn of the last century to look into a case of Black Widow killers, and the second is a current-day story involving one of the most ruthless and deadly street gangs in history. First up is the case of a series of mysterious deaths that occurred in Liverpool, England in the late 1800s. Suspicions arose when several members of one household took ill and died, and authorities began to look into who would profit from their deaths. This is Chapter 2 of Black Widows, and this is the case of the Black Widows of Liverpool. In late 1883, Patrick Higgins received word that his brother Thomas had died after a short illness in Liverpool, England. Patrick was understandably upset by this news. His brother was only 45 years old. Patrick was baffled. Thomas had always been in good, even robust health. He decided to look into the matter further. He first visited the doctor who had attended his brother during his brief illness. Dr. Whitford said that Thomas had complained of severe stomach pain. The doctor had diagnosed him as suffering from dysentery, an inflammation of the lower intestines, usually caused by a bacterial or a parasitic infection. It was not an uncommon illness in the late 1800s, especially in the area where Thomas was living. While Liverpool was fast becoming a growing area of manufacturing and trade, there was quite a wide disparity between the haves and have-nots. Fortunes were being made in industries such as shipping and manufacturing, but often on the backs of low-paid, unskilled workers who were crammed into cheap housing that could be cold, drafty, and none too clean due to the lack of adequate sanitation and clean water. The scarcity of resources was impacted even further when Irish immigrants began arriving in great numbers during the 1840s, 
as a result of the Great Famine. Boarding houses began to spring up with homes being cut up into even smaller apartment rooms that were then rented cheaply. The common areas were shared with meals sometimes provided as well. Thomas Higgins had been living in boarding house accommodations ever since the death of his wife. The doctor further explained that, in his opinion, Thomas's bout with dysentery was most likely brought on by drinking cheap whiskey. He had prescribed castor oil, commonly administered for any number of ailments during that time, but an odd choice since castor oil is well known to have laxative properties and a common symptom of dysentery is hemorrhagic diarrhea. But perhaps that's too much info. He also prescribed opium to help ease the pain. But just two days later, Thomas Higgins was dead. Patrick was told by Dr. Whitford that he was most certain that his brother had died of dysentery. As a matter of fact, this was what he'd listed as the cause of death on the death certificate that had been requested from him just days after Higgins expired. And who had requested the death certificate, Patrick inquired. Why, his wife, Margaret Higgins, of course, the doctor responded. Something about this seemed off, and Patrick would continue to ask questions and get ever more surprising answers. After Patrick discovered that his brother had died and that his widow had quickly requested an official death certificate, he suspected this might be in order to collect benefits from a burial insurance policy, common and easily obtained at that time. But when Patrick Higgins found that his brother had been insured with five different burial societies, totaling 150 pounds, or almost 18,000 pounds today, the alarm bell started to go off in his head. He wanted the authorities to look into the person who sought to gain the most from his brother's death, his widow, Margaret Higgins. Margaret Higgins, formerly Margaret Flanagan, and her sister Catherine Flanagan had come from Ireland and settled in Liverpool. Together they ran a rooming house located at 5 Skirving Street, Liverpool. Thomas Higgins had arrived at the Flanagans and took a room in the home with his young daughter Mary. Also residing there was Margaret Flanagan's son, John, age 22, as well as another male boarder, Patrick Jennings, and his teenage daughter, Margaret. Patrick Jennings and his family had lodged with the Flanagan sisters for over a decade. Patrick Higgins had persuaded the police to look into his brother's death. They now discovered that tragedy seemed to follow the Flanagan sisters. First in December of 1880, Catherine's son John had taken ill and died at the age of 22. No one had inquired much into his death. Catherine had been telling neighbors for some time that her son had been ill. When he finally succumbed to his illness, it wasn't a shock to anyone. Authorities also discovered, however, that Catherine had collected approximately 70 pounds from several insurance agencies or burial societies. But things began to look up for the family when Margaret Flanagan and boarder Thomas Higgins fell in love and became engaged. Margaret, just shy of 40 years old, was lucky enough to find a spouse who might care for and help support her in her middle age. After all, it was her sister Catherine who was the landlady of the home. She was simply employed as the charwoman. In turn, she could serve as a loving mother figure to his eight-year-old daughter, Mary. But just months into the marriage, poor Mary had become ill and died. It was a devastating loss for Thomas. Luckily, he had a loving wife to help him through his grief. Again, no foul play was suspected. In the slums of Liverpool, young and old alike could be struck down at any time by illness and disease. 
It was very sad, but not surprising to anyone. However, what was surprising was that investigators discovered that while only a stepmother for a few short weeks, Margaret had applied for and then collected a sum of 22 pounds after Mary's death. Three months later, 19-year-old boarder Margaret Jennings also fell ill and died. Her burial insurance was not collected by her father, Patrick, but by her landlady, Catherine Flanagan. What happened to her father is unknown. Apparently, he moved away after Margaret's death. You see, at that time, it was simply a matter of filling out a form and paying a small premium in order to take out burial insurance on anyone. They didn't need to be related to you, and you didn't even have to seek their permission. In fact, the insured parties were not even commonly informed of the policy. Burial society agents would sign up almost anyone, with no questions asked, and receive a commission on the premiums paid. At this point in the story, we can assume that Catherine and Margaret Flanagan were bumping off family members and boarders alike in order to collect the insurance money. The next person to die was Margaret's new husband, Thomas Higgins. The only glitch in the Flanagan sisters' system came about as a result of greed. While Margaret already had purchased 150 pounds of burial insurance on her husband through a series of small policies, Catherine wanted to get in on the action, but apparently she was in a hurry. She tried to take out a 50-pound policy against her brother-in-law's life, but a policy of that amount required a doctor's examination on the person whose life was to be insured. Patrick Higgins remembered that his brother had described an incident to him shortly before his death, where a doctor had arrived at the house to conduct an examination on him. His brother, when not working, was often drunk, and when the doctor arrived, he was three sheets to the wind and became angry when the doctor explained why he was there. Thomas, knowing nothing about it, summarily threw the doctor out of the house. He found the story amusing and shared it with Patrick. It was then that the information of an additional policy request on Thomas's life by Catherine was uncovered. This was the point in which Patrick brought his suspicions to the police, upon which the whole sordid tale began to unravel. The next step was for the police to request the coroner conduct a post-mortem examination on Thomas Higgins. The coroner arrived at the Flanagan's home just as Thomas's wake was taking place. He was somewhat taken aback when he entered the home and with Thomas's body in the casket and on display for the mourners to pay their respects, the scene was hardly respectful. Instead, a party seemed to be in full swing, with both Catherine and Margaret, the grieving widow, making merry and enjoying a drink. In my mind, I picture them clinking champagne flutes and toasting their good fortune with a bottle of bubbly. But this just might be a bit too high class for the likes of the Flanagan gals. Anywho, when Catherine saw the coroner enter, flanked by police officers with a warrant to examine the body of the deceased for signs of unnatural death, she hightailed it out of the house through the back door. Margaret wasn't as quick and was hauled downtown for questioning while the autopsy took place. As you've probably guessed, poor Thomas Higgins's body was found riddled with arsenic. He'd been poisoned to death. The coroner concluded that he'd been poisoned slowly over several days. A search was conducted of the house and a, quote, bottle containing a mystery white substance, unquote, was later discovered to have traces of arsenic. As well, a housecoat belonging to Margaret was found to have traces of the poison in the pocket. Margaret was immediately arrested as a suspect in the murder of her husband. Catherine, after a week on the lam, was caught in nearby Wavertree, using an assumed name and hiding in a boarding house. 
Both sisters were formally charged with the murder on October 16, 1883. Now the other suspicious deaths surrounding the sisters were investigated. The bodies of Catherine's son John, little Mary Higgins, and boarder Margaret Jennings were exhumed. Traces of arsenic were found in all three of the deceased. Arsenic was commonly found in rat poisons in the late 1800s, and investigators suspected that the sisters had fed rat poison in small quantities to their victims until they expired. However, they found that other ingredients commonly found in rat poisons were not present in the bodies. Also, the sisters were illiterate, and authorities didn't think they could go through the usual channels to secure pure arsenic. They would have had to visit a chemist and fill out a script for the poison. What investigators discovered was that the women were much more cunning than they had given them credit for. Flypaper that could be found in any household at that time contained arsenic. By soaking the flypaper in water, they were able to extract the poison and then mix it in drinks given to their victims. But they may have also had help, a charge that Catherine made in order to attempt to make a deal with prosecutors. To cut a deal, Catherine said she would tell investigators the whole story. There were more victims, she said. Besides the four they were suspected of murdering, she counted at least a half dozen more. But she and her sister had not acted alone, she claimed. The murders had all been planned and executed in order to collect burial insurance. Several others had conspired with them to run the racket. All the conspirators were women, and all had shared in the profits. All in all, there were eight implicated by Catherine in the murder plot. Catherine, her sister Margaret, and two other women, Margaret Evans and Bridget Begley, were the poisoners. Women named Margaret Potter, Bridget Stanton, and another only identified as Mrs. Fallon were purported to be the insurers. Finally, a woman named Catherine Ryan was said to have obtained the arsenic used on some of the victims. Catherine also alleged that Margaret Evans was the leader of the crime ring and the one who came up with the plan to poison the victims and collect the burial insurance. The first victim, according to Catherine, was an intellectually disabled young woman. Ryan secured the poison, and Evans administered it to the girl. It was also believed that other people were employed to play the part of the victim to insurance doctors in order to qualify for the burial insurance. For example, a burial society agent who met with a man who identified himself as Thomas Higgins to take out an insurance policy was later shown the body of the deceased man and testified that it was not the same man he'd met with. While there was circumstantial evidence that the other women may have been involved, Bridget Stanton was linked to three of the insurance policies collected on the deceased, and some of the others were the last to be seen with some of the victims before they died, investigators really only had Catherine's account of their involvement without corroborating evidence. As a result, prosecutors declined to press charges against the others. In the end, only Catherine Flanagan and her sister Margaret Higgins were tried for murder and only on one count, in the death of Thomas Higgins. The trial was held in 1884. The sisters were both found guilty of murdering Thomas Higgins for financial gain. Catherine was shown no leniency in exchange for her confession. Both were sentenced to be hanged. On March 3, 1884, they were taken to the gallows at Kirkdale Prison and hanged side by side. Over 1,000 spectators were in attendance to see the Black Widows of Liverpool be executed. What we saw in that last story was not just a case of Black Widow murders, 
but a black widow crime syndicate. They turned murder into a profitable business. In the next story, I'll tell you about a family of Black Widow sisters that not only ran a crime syndicate, but were operating with the support and assistance of one of the most ruthless and violent criminal organizations in the world. This time, I'll share a much more current story about a Black Widow operation that comes from the Central American country of El Salvador. In the fall of 2016, a young woman reported a harrowing account to police in El Salvador's capital city, San Salvador. The woman, who came to be known only as Monica to protect her identity, told police that she had escaped a home owned by the notorious gang Mara Salvatrucha, or MS-13, as it is more commonly known outside of that country. The police were not surprised that the MS-13 gang was responsible for whatever crimes had been perpetrated against this young girl. The gang, with tens of thousands of members in El Salvador alone, is said to be responsible for the majority of crimes committed in that country. But MS-13 originated in the United States. In the 1980s, many young men immigrated as refugees from El Salvador as a result of the country's long and brutal civil war. A majority of them landed in the Los Angeles area and banded together for safety and survival. They became involved in the drug trade, and their numbers and criminal activity rapidly increased in the city. They became known as one of the most violent street gangs as they battled rival Mexican gangs for territory in the Los Angeles drug trade. They began to expand into other states, and today can be found in 46 states in the U.S. and even within Europe and Asia. Their numbers and reputation for violence caused the FBI to create a special task force in 1994, to combat the gang's criminal activity in the U.S. A crackdown on MS-13 members resulted in hundreds of young men being deported back to El Salvador in the late 1990s and early 2000s. This caused a bad situation in El Salvador's cities to become even worse. The power of the gangs increased, with boys as young as 8 and 9 forced to join and become street soldiers. These children are often caught in the crossfire between MS-13 members and members of rival gang Barrio 18. El Salvador now has the world's highest homicide rate for minors. An average of 1.5 children are killed there every day. Many minors flee the country to avoid becoming victims. In 2016 alone, over 17,000 unaccompanied minors from El Salvador were apprehended by the U.S. Border Patrol as they attempted to enter the country. Fast becoming the preferred target of MS-13's violence are El Salvador's girls and young women. Women are beaten, raped, and often killed in retaliation against rival gang members or to punish young men who refuse to join the ranks. The sisters, daughters, and mothers of these men are often targeted. The World Health Organization has reported that homicide rates for young women in El Salvador has increased dramatically since the year 2000. As well as being used as pawns against rivals, women are sometimes forced into relationships with gang members or sold into the sex trade. But even with all of that, police were astonished by the story that the young woman Monica reported. Monica reported that a woman named Esmeralda had offered her a job working as a housekeeper at a fine home in San Salvador. She had met the woman in a local mall, where they struck up a conversation. The woman was well-spoken, dressed nicely, and seemed to be a professional. Monica quickly agreed to take the job. 
When she arrived at the residence, Monica realized she had been tricked. The home was owned by the Mata Salvatrucha gang members, and Esmeralda quickly forced the girl into a criminal plot. Monica was threatened with physical harm and told that her family would also be in danger if she did not do as she was told. She was forced to marry a stranger, a man who was told that Monica was an American citizen, which would provide him a way to enter the United States legally. It turned out that the woman who'd brought Monica to her home was a female ringleader named Esmeralda Aravel Flores Acosta, who was working in connection with MS-13 gang members to perpetrate the scam. They would threaten and intimidate young women into marrying men who'd been hand-selected as victims. The men all had good jobs and had enough money to pay to set up the sham marriage to a girl the gang falsely claimed was a U.S. citizen. Acosta herself, along with her sisters Carla Jennifer Flores Acosta and Maria Cristiana Flores de Cruz, had already presented themselves as brides to other men to perpetrate this ruse. To avoid the authorities' suspicion that may have resulted from multiple marriages, they then essentially kidnapped other young women to stand in as the brides. Next, on the day they were to be wed, the kidnapped women were taken to meet the men, where the marriages took place under the watchful eye of one of the Acosta sisters and several armed gang members. Some of the women were told that later, they would be sent to the United States to begin a new life. In order for these grooms to be approved for this arrangement, which would give them legal entrance into the U.S., Acosta told them they must secure a life insurance policy listing their new bride as beneficiary. The men were told that the immigration authorities required this as proof that there was a true commitment between the spouses and also as an economic guarantee for the wife. The men happily agreed to this stipulation. After the wedding, the young women would return to the home where they were imprisoned by the gang. Within a few weeks, the grooms, as they were waiting for their promised visas, were instead murdered by the gang members. Homicides were such a common occurrence in the capital city of San Salvador that these random murders did not raise many red flags. Soon after these murders, the brides were sent to collect the life insurance money, which was then split between the Acosta sisters and the gang members. The young women were then either kept imprisoned in the home where they were further exploited as unpaid help or used as sex slaves, or they were sold and forced into sex slavery in Mexico or other South or Central American locations where the MS-13 were running criminal operations. But Monica had managed to escape her captors and flee to the police. She told them that on September 2, 2016, she had been forced to marry a man named Melvin Osmaro Reyes Rosa. Afterwards, she had returned to Acosta's home and continued to work as domestic help. A month later, on October 7th, Monica was told that Melvin was dead. Her captors made her go to the morgue to identify his body and receive the paperwork as proof of his death. Acosta and her accomplices then filed a claim for the insurance money, which Monica, accompanied by gang members, was sent to collect. She told authorities that the insurance policy was worth the equivalent of about 46,000 U.S. dollars. Esmeralda Acosta kept about 16,000, and the rest went to the gang. The women forced into these arrangements were kept compliant through fear, violence, and intimidation, not least of which was viewing the body of a murdered man that they had been forced to wed just days or weeks before. Of course, the women were very aware that MS-13 gang members had been responsible for the murders and would have no compunction about subjecting them to the same fate. 
Monica was able to supply investigators with the location of the home where the women were being kept prisoners. The house, located on the outskirts of the city of San Salvador, was raided by the police. Three people were arrested and taken into custody, including two of Esmeralda's sisters, Carla Flores Acosta and Marianne Cristina de Cruz. Two other women, both adolescents, were being held in the home by the Acosta sisters. They, along with Monica, were taken into police protection and kept in an undisclosed location. Esmeralda was able to escape the raid and went on the run. She evaded police for nine months before she was finally caught in December of 2017. Upon her arrest, she said, I am innocent. I have never worked at that residence. I sell vehicles and work as a stylist. She claimed that a former employee and a corrupt police officer were trying to frame her for the murders. It was estimated that Acosta received approximately $175,000 over the course of the insurance scam. It was a very sophisticated operation, well-planned, said Violeta Olivares, head of the Specialized Unit of Illegal Trafficking of Persons in El Salvador. The criminal group also received payments from the male victims to secure them brides, but how much they paid is unknown. Investigators were able to determine the names of at least two other victims murdered by the gang for the insurance money. Another young woman told investigators that she was forced to marry a man named Edgar Criona Hernandez in the summer of 2014. He was killed in September of that year, and his body was left on the side of El Salvador's Oro Highway. The gang collected not only life insurance, but also Hernandez's pension through the woman who was now his widow. Investigators continued to try and determine names and details of other possible victims. It was unclear just how many in total had been set up for murder by the Black Widows of El Salvador, as they came to be known, and their accomplices. The Acosta sisters were also suspected to have presented themselves as brides for other victims, using assumed names. In another strange twist in the investigation, police discovered that another of the Acosta sisters, Gabriela Guadalupe Flores, was suspected of poisoning her husband. Gabriela, age 25, married 78-year-old Edgar Lopez Bertrand. Bertrand was a well-known television evangelist and founder of El Salvador's largest evangelical church, the Baptist Biblical Tabernacle. Known as Brother Toby, the man fell ill soon after marrying his young bride in December of 2016. After another bout of illness, he died in November of 2017 of kidney failure. An autopsy was performed on Brother Toby after his young widow's connection to the Black Widow operation was discovered. The autopsy revealed unusually high levels of aluminum and lead in his body. The investigation is ongoing. In June of 2018, the trials began for eight members of the Black Widow operation. Esmeralda Flores Acosta, Carla Flores Acosta, Maria Cristina Flores, Isabel Del Carmen Mendez, Franklin Vladimir Lopez Flores, Javier Benitez, and Roberto Omar Alvarez were all charged with aggravated homicide, trafficking in persons, sexual exploitation, illicit group activity, and fraud. If convicted of these crimes, they could each face up to 60 years in prison. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Before we end, I want to give a big thank you to all our new Patreon supporters. And a special shout out to those of you who have pledged at our highest levels. Our $10 a month metalheads and our $5 a month rock gods. 
Thank you to Stephen Hutto, Dale Mitchell, Claudia Gomez, Starla Sims, Raven Beglin, Stephanie Hansen, Linda Levy, and Tina Kelly. Thanks so much. Also, the winner of this month's drawing from all our Patreon supporters is Renee Williams from Ludowici or Ludowiki, Georgia. Congratulations, Renee. You will be receiving a 2019 True Crime Desk Calendar and some OUAC swag. If you want to be entered into the drawing each month, you just have to be a Patreon supporter at any level. One patron is picked randomly at the end of the last episode each month. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to sign up or for more information. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our assistant extraordinaire is Lorena Garcia, and our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>